Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be resuming our discussion of Genesis 26, and we'll pick up the text in verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. I think the principle that governs this really isn't so much the actions that we find Isaac in the midst of, but rather what he should have done. And so as we read this seemingly all too familiar account here, and it should sound very familiar, we should walk away saying that the promises of God's blessings should increase faith. That's really kind of more application. When God has blessed us, it should increase our faith, not decrease it. Sadly, however, that's not what we find with Isaac. So, we really should increase. And we see he gets off to a good start in verse six, right? There's obedience there. He's getting ready because of a famine in the land to go down to Egypt. And God says, no, don't do that, which is intuitive. Do that, which is counterintuitive, which I'm going to tell you and stay here in this land. And I will give you the land. And we looked at those promises. God said, I will be with you. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you obey me, I will give this land to you and your offspring. If you obey me, we put all these, if you obey me, right? If you just stay and do all these things uh, or do this, then I will have all these things for you. And, And he said, lastly, that he would establish the oath that he swore to Abraham with Isaac. And then we get this this uh, testimony in verse 6, or this record, that Isaac settled in Gerar. That's obedience. So right there in verse 6, we see a demonstration of obedience, which is a good thing. Would, would it be that the story ended right there, then we could just walk away celebrating? God says, do this thing that goes against your natural inclinations, and he does this thing in obedience with God. Should be the end of the story. But rather than it being the end of the story, what we find is that Isaac still has some growing to do. And then this is what gets us into an interesting discussion is this story that we read that unfolds for us sounds very reminiscent of something that we've heard twice before. And this is really a setback in his faith that, you know, you could call it a growing time. And there is a sense in which every single trial that we endure everything that we go through in our own personal faith uh, and setbacks to the faith do serve to strengthen us later on, but not always. I mean, I, 
I, I look at some of the things in my life and I'm filled with regret over decisions I've made, things that I've said, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And I wish that I could go back and change those things. I can't. I can learn from them. Uh, but if I had the option, there are just some things I'd rather do right the, f- the first time rather than have it be the wrong way and then go back and try and repair things. This, I would argue, would be one of those times where we don't want to, uh, we don't want to just walk in this and have to learn this his own way, right? This isn't a growing time for Isaac's faith. It's rather a setback, and then he's going to have to recover from this and move forward and be strengthened later. To sit here and lie about your sister because you don't trust God, uh, and there's no way, I should just say at the outset, there's no way that either Abraham, his father, or Isaac is thinking, I don't trust God. But their actions are saying that they don't trust God. That's the problem. You know, if you were to sit down and talk with these men, if you had that opportunity at this point before any of these, you know, the ramifications of these decisions had been fully thought through and everything, after they go and lie, whether it's Abraham in Egypt or then again with Abimelech or now Isaac with Abimelech, and they go and lie, and then they justify that lie. At that very moment, if you said, do you trust in God? I think that their answer would have been, yes, they do. But at that point, it would be appropriate to point out that their actions say the complete opposite. Now, there's also an interesting thing here, and that is that there is the parallel. This is striking to me because it demonstrates something, and that's this familial sin. There seems to be some kind of connection, and that's very sobering. In other words, this is something that his father has done twice. It's a very unique type of sin. I mean, it's a lie. He shouldn't be doing this. It's very unique, but it's something that you're not going to find other people doing. It's, It's not a common sin, and yet he does it, and his father did it. And I think one of the lessons that we have to learn from this is that we have to be very careful about how we uh, live before our children and the type of the type of prayer and intercession we offer on, on their behalf uh, to the Lord and and really how we conduct ourselves before them because our sins, they're going to be more prone to walk in the sins that we commit than those of people around them that they don't see as much. And so there is, I believe, a familial connection. Not only does the story sound familial, but it serves as a reminder to us that those things which are setbacks for us, those things which are temptations for us and stumbling blocks for us, there is a greater likelihood that those will be stumbling blocks for our own children. And that's something that we should be very well aware of. So I would just pause at this point and say, you know, are you aware of those things which are temptations to you? Are you aware of your weaknesses in the faith and the places where you need to grow? I'm not asking you to go out and talk to anybody about it. I mean, talk to the Lord, uh, but this isn't time to be proud and you know, boastful, even in your own study or whatever it is, wherever you happen to be listening to this and say, oh, I don't have any issues. We all do. And you know it, and I know it, and guess who knows it even better than us? The Lord does. And he knows. I mean, he knows what the thing, the things that we struggle with. Every believer has their struggles. No one is sinless. No one is without sin. 
And that's what Jesus, you know, says in, in the word of God. Uh, that's what he says through John in his first epistle. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The chapter one there, the whole epistle, all of the Johannine epistles, right? Uh, they're not directed, they're not written in an evangelistic manner. The audience, the target audience of these epistles are believers. And so this isn't a gospel call to say, you know, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and therefore, if you confess your sins, you get eternal life. No, I, that's true. If you confess your sin the first time that you're calling out to Jesus for salvation, you will receive that salvation that he offers. But because it's written to believers, the point is, is that believers sin. If believers say that they have no sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. And therefore, if believers confess their sin, we're talking daily sin here, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as the text says. So I want to encourage you then to be transparent, to be honest, to confess your sins, as we read in the epistle of John. And I'm not doing that because I, you know, for my own personal benefit, I don't know if you're going to do that or not, but I am asking you and encouraging you to do that for the sake of your children and for those around you. This isn't just children. I mean, if you happen to live with another person, uh, say a family member, like, you know, a brother or something like that, or you have a sister that lives with you or a mother, you know, if you are an adult and you have your own aging parents living with you, if there's somebody in your life that you're around every single day, maybe not in your home, but there's somebody that you see every single day or very, very regularly, chances are that whatever it is about you, those type of things are going to be more influential on that person's life than somebody that they see less. And so I think the principle applies. We want to be very, very careful. We want to ask the Lord to show us what we need to be confessing, to show us the areas that we need to work on so that we can work on them so that we won't be a stumbling block to our children. And we come back to the text here, and it's almost cringeworthy because, you know, the reasoning is the same. He's heard his father go through this. Uh, He's seen the example in the past. Now, one of them was before he was born, but then later on, he's seen at least one and he's falling prey to the same thing. Knowing my own sinfulness and my own proclivities, and (laughs) I know that I can say confidently, I do not want my children to do those things, right? I, I wish, I, I pray for them and I wish that they would not walk as I do. Only imitate me, as Paul said, as I imitate Christ. I would, I wish that it was that easy, that you know, in the things that you see me doing well that are in accordance and obedience with the scripture, follow me on those things and the rest don't follow me. But those are going to be influenced and we see that now here in this story. So we could say it this way, we need to strive to live by faith each and every minute. One victory is insufficient. Isaac has some growing to do here. He's made this step of uh, obedience and living in the land where it goes against the natural inclinations, all of those things. He's got one positive thing. He's got a victory, but rather than just sitting back and letting your guard down, 
we have to take each moment, every minute of every day and try and subsume that under the Lord and his authority and say, okay, Lord, how can I best honor you in this? How can I take another step in a way that is pleasing to you? Now, a couple smaller lessons that come out here, like in verse seven, we see this idea that deception endangers the blessing. Now, from a sovereign standpoint, we know that that's not true because God has said that he will bless and it's not contingent on Isaac. Uh, It wasn't even contingent on Abraham. God made the promise to Abraham in a unilateral way or a unilateral covenant. Because of that, nothing was predicated on Abraham's obedience and it's not predicated on Isaac. So we know from a grand theological perspective that these things will come about. But from a human perspective, he is putting himself in danger and he's clearly not thinking correctly because if he was thinking correctly about God and had a right view of God, then he would not have done this. He would not have felt compelled to lie. So from a human perspective, he is endangering the blessing by lying. Look at verse seven, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, and now all of a sudden he's got alarm bells going off. You know, why are they asking me about her? He knows that she is attractive in appearance, it says at the end of the verse, and because they're asking, it must mean that they're interested in her, and if they're interested in her, they'll probably kill me right? That that's the thought process. And that's basically what he says. So he says, she's my sister. I'm not going to say she's my wife. Cause if I say she's my wife, they're going to kill me because she's pretty. Well, you're putting yourself in a position of danger from a human standpoint, uh, of not receiving the blessing that has been promised to you because of that foolish decision. So we want to be very careful in our thought processes. Even when things are tough, We always have to remember that God is truly sovereign over all circumstances. And then lastly, the detection of the deception ends the threat to the blessing. What's sad about this is that it comes from an outside source, from Abimelech. This isn't Isaac coming to his senses and repenting and trusting in the Lord. This has to be somebody outside of, and it doesn't have to be, but in this case it is, it's somebody outside of the recipient of the blessing, the one who knows more about the one true and living God, the God of heaven who created the heavens and the earth, that's Isaac. He knows more about God than Abimelech does, and he worships the true and living God. And yet Abimelech is the one who is able to sniff out this deception and say, hey, there's something not right here because God allows him to see. And by the way, when we could have a huge discussion on the sovereignty of God and how things work, but do you think it's an accident, right? That Abimelech in verse eight is looking out of a window at that particular time and seeing Isaac's conduct with his wife. I don't think that's an accident at all. Uh, If your view of God and his sovereignty and his omnipresence and his orchestration of all events throughout all time to bring about all of his perfect way is such that he is everywhere and bringing everything together uh, for his sovereign purposes, then he divinely and sovereignly arranged so that Abimelech would be there right at that moment to see that thing, to come to that understanding. So there's a great theological lesson in sovereignty here, but it's also kind of humbling to note that God uses somebody who is not even a God-fearer to bring about the end of this danger zone that he finds himself in 
uh, because we have people that are wanting to call on his wife. So the detection of the deception ends the threat to the blessing, and now he's in a good spot to receive that blessing again. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't use uh, people outside of the church. Uh, there's great wisdom from a practical standpoint. Think of uh, Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, who watches how Moses is leading a great number of people and says, you can't, this isn't sustainable. There's a better way to do this. I mean, that's just practical wisdom. And sometimes God does use, uh, he does use that in our lives. So rather than learning these tough lessons and endangering blessings and all of that other stuff, let's just do the right thing and strive to live by faith each and every minute so that we don't end up making a foolish decision that demonstrates poor theology. Let's make good God-honoring decisions that demonstrate a robust and mature theology and view of God each and every decision of our lives and each and every minute. That's the way we should do it. That's where we're going to end it today. We'll pick up the text then in verse 12 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.